Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. ES Audio. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm Mark Blunden and this is The Leader. Ukrainians are building tens of thousands of drones and it is quite extraordinary. In this episode of The Leader podcast, we'll examine Ukraine's long-range drone war penetrating deep inside Russian territory, both in the air and underwater. But first, some breaking news from Thursday's mini-cabinet reshuffle as Energy Secretary Grant Shapps is parachuted into the Ministry of Defence. The former six-day Home Secretary replaces Ben Wallace, who was the longest-serving Defence Chief of this latest Conservative government, having served under three Prime Ministers. Wallace was also earlier running to become the next NATO Secretary-General, but reportedly was unable to secure enough backing from allies for the top job and pulled out of the race. So what will Shapps find in his entry at the MOD? We're joined by Professor Tim Willisey-Wilsey, visiting Professor of War Studies at King's College London, who tells us in part two about his research trip to Ukraine, where he met commanders in charge of the programme for building vast squadrons of drones to attack Russian targets. But first, what are your thoughts on Rishi Sunak's appointment of Grant Shapps? I think it's really quite good news. I mean, the great thing about Grant Shapps is he's quite nimble. He knows how to make the Whitehall machine work for him, which is more than you can say for many defence secretaries we've had over the years. So that's the good point. The less good point is he's got, what, 15 months or something in the rails. So this is yet another example of short-termism. What was good about Ben Wallace is he had a good long chunk of time in there, which gave him a chance to sort of achieve stuff. And what, in your view, has he achieved? Well, I think his big achievement has been has been Ukraine, really. I mean, he's been, he's been really, really at the forefront of the government and actually of NATO's. Uh, attitude towards Ukraine. I mean, if you think about it, right back in the early days, the provision of those end-law anti-tank weapons right at the beginning in February. Um, I mean, had Britain not done that, would other NATO countries and the United States have been as willing to provide hardware? I sort of slightly doubt it. I think he's been at the forefront of the Ukraine effort. And I think that that is his that is his legacy. That's what he will be remembered for. And Wallace was the longest serving recent defence secretary. How was he regarded by the armed forces? I think it was good. I mean, as a former Scots Guard officer, as an army man himself, you know, he knew he knew how to behave with the chiefs of staff. He knew how to behave with the soldiers. And I think, you know, that was much appreciated. You could then ask the question, was that all a bit too comfortable? Because, you know, let's face it, British defence is in a real mess at the moment, um, sort of caught between a whole number of different priorities. For example, the old-fashioned counterinsurgency warfare that we did in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the new nation-state stuff, which we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia. And Britain is sort of caught between both, really unable to do either, and with a defence capability, which I think is extremely fragile. What do we know about the circumstances of Wallace's departure? I think he was disappointed that the opportunity at NATO, you know, wasn't going to work. I mean, he wasn't a head of government. And I think there is some evidence that he had annoyed the United States by 
I think in Biden's view, being overly forward-leaning on, on Ukraine, in many ways sort of almost daring, you know, the United States to follow us, which I don't think is a position that the Americans particularly enjoyed. And in that circumstance, the fact that he wasn't really able to get the sort of defense budget that we need to get things to get things going must have been a source of frustration. So I can see how all this added up in him wanting to step down. What's top of Shaps's intray? I think the Ukraine war is pretty close to the top of his intray, not least in sustaining the ammunition and munitions supply, which is difficult because we've run our stocks, I think, possibly dangerously, dangerously low. But I think the bigger thing, the bigger long term thing is to produce a credible UK defence strategy. And we're caught between the old form of warfare that we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq and the new nation state stuff. And we had convinced ourselves that the future of warfare was going to be what we call hybrid warfare, things like cyber, stuff that requires sort of people in dimly lit rooms with computers rather than people with large chunks of metal like battle tanks. And what the Ukraine war has shown us is that actually both are required. So the Ukraine's victory north of Kiev showed that sort of nimble, modern, hybrid sort of warfare with little groups operating with anti-tank weapons and drones very effectively. But in the east, we've seen old-fashioned, almost World War One, World War to warfare with big slabs of armoured divisions, artillery, and lots and lots of infantry. So we don't have lots of tanks, we don't have lots of artillery, and we no longer have lots of infantry. infantry. So, you know, we must really look at ourselves and wonder, could Britain really fight a war lasting more than, you know, six weeks, six to eight weeks? And I think the answer is probably not. Let's go to the ads coming up. Inside Ukraine's long-range kamikaze drone war against Russia, why not hit follow in the meantime and give us a rating? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. That's a drone being launched in May near Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. Now we're back with King's College London's Professor Tim Willisey-Wilsey, who earlier this summer was on the ground in Kiev meeting the commanders in charge of a programme responsible for building drones with ranges of hundreds of miles. A certain type of kamikaze drone, which has the codename of Beaver, is very hush-hush. Professor, what can you tell us about their capabilities? Well, the Beaver drone, for what we know about it, is actually very similar, I think, in many ways to the Iranian Shahid 
drone, which was sort of so effective. So a very, very basic drone, petrol-driven drone, which can fly, I don't know, about something like 600 miles and deliver a reasonably significant warhead, you know, 20 kilograms, something of that nature. But the story of the drones is much more interesting than that. I was in I was in Kiev in May and spoke to the drone people there. And it is one of the most extraordinary industries in that it is extraordinarily responsive. So there is a what you would call a sort of reinforcing loop between the people building the drones and the people using them on the ground. So they literally speak on the telephone every evening. How did that drone go? What what do you think we should modify? And so in, in the extraordinarily uh, responsive industry. So incidentally, contrasting so much with the sort of very heavy bureaucratic Western procurement systems that we operate. So the Ukrainians are building tens of thousands of drones. It is quite extraordinary. And each one is slightly different. And of course, the Beaver drone is one of their bigger drones and has been very effective in recent days because it can fly a reasonably long distance and it is remarkably accurate. Could you tell us more about their agile strategy? So um, a commander will say uh, that was very good, but, you know, the warhead was a little bit too, a uh, little bit too uh, light or we need a little bit of extra distance or the camera on it isn't sufficiently flexible, or whatever. And that is the sort of that is the sort of industry that they have developed, which is sort of, I think, probably quite akin to some of the Israeli defense uh, industries. So these countries, which are sort of regularly involved in conflict, are really quite good at developing responsiveness, whereas countries like ours, which haven't been in a serious conflict for, you know, many, many years, tend to get very bureaucratic and rather sort of stultified. And also you spoke to the people funding the programme. How much do these devices cost? There's a sort of remarkable sort of crowdfunding type system by which this is funded by the Ukrainian diaspora around the world and Ukraine's many, many well-wishers, of course. So it's reasonably well-funded. The smaller ones that they're using literally by the hundreds and thousands every day just across the border, so or, or just across into Russian lines in the Donbass. Some of those are literally a couple of hundred dollars. You know, not very, not very, not very much at all. And of course, a lot of them are what are now called kamikaze drones. So these are drones which you lose each time because you you crash the drone itself into the target. Uh, you know, which is quite common now. These bigger ones like the the beaver drone. I don't think we know a cost of them, but you know, they're not, I mean, people who've looked at the Iranian Shahid drone say that it's really like the sort of thing that you could knock up in a sort of car repair shop. These are quite basic pieces of equipment, but extraordinarily effective. What sort of payloads are they carrying and what's the psychological impact on Russia? There are the two uses of these drones. So one is as a means of degrading Russian capability, and they are being very effective. So you know, we saw the one on Peskov the other day, which destroyed, they think, probably four Illusion 76 transport planes. I mean, that is that is an extraordinary achievement. And there have been drones in recent weeks that have destroyed Tu-22 um, long-range bombers. So these are drones being used to really degrade Russian capability. And often, you know, they've also been very effective at attacking um, artillery dumps and things like that. So that's the drones being used in, in terms of degrading capability. The other use is psychological, and I sense they're being very careful here. So these are the drone drones that they've been flying into office blocks in Moscow. I think the aim here is to unsettle the Russian population, but equally, I suspect the Ukrainians are conscious that they don't want to kill innocent people, because that, as we all know from bombing in World War II and afterwards, it can actually make a population more resolute rather than less resolute. 
So I think they're deploying these with some skill. They killed three people in Belgorod the other day. I suspect they're going to, wherever possible, to avoid killing innocent people. And that's that's very difficult to do when you're flying, you know, 20 kilos warheads around the place on a, on a lightly armed drone. And of course, there's always the danger that the drone gets shot down and people are killed by the wreckage. And how about their underwater drone capabilities? They have been remarkable. Um, there have been a couple of extraordinary attacks on Sevastopol, the big Russian port for the Black Sea fleet in Crimea. And uh, I think Russians are probably getting wiser to it now. But it basically means that large amounts of the Black Sea fleet are confined to port, which isn't a bad outcome if you're just using relatively cheap drones. Finally, many thanks for your time. What's your view on the future of the Russian mercenary group Wagner after the death of its leader and lately Putin enemy Yevgeny Prigozhin? I think Wagner are in trouble. I think the one thing you can be sure is that the FSB, the the Russian security service, will gradually degrade Wagner. And uh, I I think it will. Maybe it will be allowed some of the action in in Africa. Uh, Maybe they'll allow it to go and play in Africa. But I think in terms of Wagner in Russia itself, I think its days are numbered. And, and I, you know, if I was a Wagner leader, I wouldn't be going on any aeroplanes or drinking many cups of tea. more on this story in the evening standard newspaper and online at standard.co.uk that's the leader we're back on friday at 4 p.m hi i'm lawrence delalio host of the evening standard rugby podcast brought to you in partnership with qbe business insurance the show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the champions cup will be crowned at tottenham hotspur stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.